Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam. The Rambling Runner Podcast is for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today we are joined by a just an amazing guest, just an amazing person, I should say, uh, Lori Mishner. Lori, I guess... It's hard to know where to start when talking about her running career and just her life in general. Uh, just the the array of emotions from extreme joys and uh, to extreme lows and everything in between. Uh, the happiness, the frustration, the anger, the joy that come with uh, just all the things that have uh, encapsulated or been a part of her life um, and also her running career are just amazing. So I'm excited to dive into it. Before we do, I just want to touch on a couple things. If you like the Rambling Runner podcast, uh, whether it's this episode or any of the episodes, I would appreciate it if you would review the podcast on iTunes. It's really easy to do, especially through your phone. If you just go to, if you search the Rambling Runner podcast, tip, uh, tap on the review tab and then write the review. Um, hopefully it's a good one, but if it isn't, I totally understand. Uh, but basically the best, the best way to share the podcast with a variety of uh, different audience members, if you're not sharing it directly with them, is to give the review because then it pops up on their feed. Um, more importantly, I would say is if you like, you like I said, if you like what you hear, come join us on the Facebook fan page. Uh, I put out all the episodes on that as well as sharing videos and articles that I find interesting uh, with the Rambling Runner community. So that's it on my end. Uh, hopefully you're excited to hear from Lori. I know I am. Uh, she really is a fantastic person. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. So first of all, I just want to say, um, and this is, this is becoming a trend here on the podcast. I don't even know quite where to begin to talk about your running career because there's so many different layers, so many ups and downs. It really is remarkable. Um, so I guess I'll just start, uh, if for no other reason than just for levity's sake, with the um, with your crazy first date <laughs> that all of a sudden put you in a in a in a very awkward position from a running perspective. I think this is hysterical. My crazy first date. I think you're referring to meeting someone at the start line of a ultra this is funny so there's more than one i'm telling i'm thinking about the one where you went um where you went biking oh, and had the crash okay. yeah so that that's more of a biking story than a running story but so that's why i was thrown off a little bit but so yeah so this is pretty this don't try this at home kids i was very smitten with this one individual happened to be a rider for specialized mountain bikes I was like, I can totally do this. No, I totally couldn't. Ended up with a broken leg, broken in five places before the advent of cell phones. So luckily there was a third wheel. Third wheel went and got a ranger. And the two of us sat there in the rain in central New York with my leg and a whole bunch of pieces. I had to use this camelback as a pillow in the back of the ambulance. And that was a very interesting first date. It almost stopped my running career because the orthopedic surgeon said that I would spend the rest of my life walking with a limp and a cane. My goodness. So what was your reaction when you heard that prognosis? Uh, total disbelief. 
I thought, no, it was, first of all, it was two days before my 21st birthday. So I was not in the frame of mind, I would think about crutches at all, because I was, you know, finally going to be able to go out with all my friends to the bars. And now I'm on crutches forever, as it felt like. So uh, sort of not really running related either, but I was, I was pretty worried about what that was going to mean to my senior year of college. Um, so I navigated all of it fine on the crutches and I kind of knew I was still going to run. I was still going to ride my bike. It was just, that wasn't really, you know, the doctors can tell you whatever they want, but that I kind of knew was never really going to be the case. I was still going to run. I'm still going to ride my bike. And yeah. That, so that, that's pretty interesting because then at that point you're, you're so young, right? To hear that, to hear that prognosis. So when you look back now at that time, do you kind of marvel at how, how you just kind of took it in stride or do you just view it as, Hey, that's how I am. And that's how I approach things. Well, I kind of just approach it as that's me, right? I, I'm going to do what I'm going to do for better or for worse. And quite honestly, this was in 1997. So I think more than anything, when I think back at that, I just thank the stars, God, whatever. I didn't get addicted to opiates because they were giving them out like candy at that point, And I had a ton of them and I was able to probably get back running and rehabbing faster than I should have because of those. Mm-hmm. And then when you were doing that recovery, at what point were you able to say, all right, I've now got, I've now, you know, gotten to the point where not only do I have, not only am I optimistic in myself and what I'm able to accomplish, but now I've gotten back to where I was before in terms of leg strength and leg health. All right. My leg is not ever going to be the same. It's a half an inch shorter than it was I can't do one-legged squats, but I would say probably about five years after the accident, I realized I was still going to be able to run long distance, ride my bike, and the mountain biking. It Mentally, I was never the same, but it took about five years for me to realize I could go back and do long distances, and even that wasn't without, it, without its hiccups. I had a big gap. I, so I got back into running and then I had a big gap because in 2002, I had three stress fractures uh, at or near the site of the biggest break. So it, it's never totally going to be the same, but it's good enough. And you, you know, you're an ultra marathoner. You put in a ton of miles over a long period of time. So what was your buildup like going from, I guess, you know, from 1997, so you just mentioned 2002, so five years later, you, you have, you know, uh, another injury or injuries related uh, to your leg to the point where all of a sudden you're able to withstand the type of pounding that an ultra runner uh, is going to experience just in the normal, just in the form of their natural uh, daily running. Sure. I have no real explanation for why I can withstand it. I have a really high pain tolerance. 
Uh, it hurts every day still today. It hurts every day. But I think probably around 2007, it got to the point where the pain was more of like a dull ache than a sharp pain. And I can, I can deal with that. That's not really an issue. Uh, but I, I have had subsequent stress fractures in that same area uh, as recently as 2011. So I think I just am going to keep eating the green leafy vegetables and hope for the best. <laughs> now, you obviously have a high pain tolerance. That That is pretty clear. Um, would you say that that's something you've developed over time or did you have that even when you were, you know, a, a youngster or a teenager or, or in that era of your life? I think I... I think it's just a function of my stubbornness, which I was born with, for sure. So I've always been able to deal with discomfort. So when you say it's related to your stubbornness, is it almost like you view it as a hurdle that needs to be conquered? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, like it hurts, but I'm not going to stop. That's funny. I love how you phrase it that way, as if that that's just not an option. When see, when obviously, well, frankly, it is an option, right? You could you could potentially stop or you know and do something like that. But it's interesting how for you it's just almost a non-starter. Right. I mean, what what else am I going to do? Sit around and I don't know, play bingo. Sorry to anybody that plays bingo. <laughs> All right, so to celebrate um, that day, so September 13th, 1997, you set out uh, to set a new PR uh, on the anniversary of that date. So I'd love to hear just the story behind that. Sure. So in 2015, I saw that the Erie Marathon, which is, you know, you go to Erie to either qualify for Boston or to set a PR or both. And I saw that that in 2015 was on September the 13th. And I said, Oh yeah. Okay. And it just, I knew it right, right then. Like that was what I was going to do, or that's what I was going to attempt to do. So I did, I just, I ran and ran and ran. I ran my all time high water mark in terms of monthly miles in August of 2015 of 320 miles and a build up to running Erie and I went and I ran a PR that had stood since before I broke my leg. So like what a, a like 19 year PR I broke by just over 11 minutes. Well, that's, that is quite a, quite an accomplishment. <laughs> and that's for sure. I was silent there because it, it really is such a, it, it's such a, such a huge PR um, to accomplish you know, 11 minutes might not sound like a lot to a non-runner, but obviously anyone who listens to this podcast wouldn't fall into that category. And it, 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 that is certainly a huge accomplishment. And then you then piggyback that. Okay. Sorry about that. We're I'm back sorry. with Lori. <laughs> I, I think the um, podcast, uh, I think the app didn't know what to do with that, that story. It, it crashed it. There you go. Well, then it's gonna, it might crash again oh, then no. in a second because um, not only was that a wonderful a wonderful PR, but then three weeks later, you come back and you're ready to run the JFK 50 miler. 
Uh, not quite three weeks. It's a little not bit. Not quite three weeks. Yeah. Okay. Um, I ran three weeks after that. I ran a the farm to farm ultra. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, that was interesting. It was a great race. The race director is fabulous. I did not have my best performance. But then shortly after that, I ran JFK. That story is fantastic. Right. And then that's, that, that, I think that is, to put it in, you know, I'm reading right now from an article you'd put in the, that you had in the magazine Level Runner, which is a great running magazine uh, here in the New England area. Anyone who, uh, you know, loves running should definitely uh, either subscribe or look at, uh, look at their uh, web presence. Well, you can and, look at their it, archives because they, they, they issued their last magazine this month. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's too bad. Yeah. But in it, they ask you what, what's your what's your your kind of a badass moment, and then you describe <laughs> the JFK fifty miler. Um, that was kind of your answer. So for you, what was that? What what stands out about that race for you? So, I think the badass award does not for the JFK in two thousand fifteen does not actually go to me, but it goes to my partner because buckle up, kids, this is what we did. We threw two kids in the car, two teenagers in the car on a Thursday morning, drove from Boston, Massachusetts to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, got a hotel room, woke up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, drove into Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on Friday morning, picked up a Philadelphia marathon bib for my partner, stuck the two kids back in the car, drove to Boonesboro, Maryland, that same Friday, got the bib for the JFK 50 mile. I ran that on Saturday, left the two kids with my partner. Awesome. At the finish line, they're sitting there waiting for me. Hand me a banana, Gatorade down my throat, say, get in the car. We're off to Philadelphia, get another hotel room in Philly. And then my partner ran the Philadelphia Marathon that morning after crewing and making sure the kids didn't, you know, wander off in Maryland the entire day before. And when, and so when, and what, when was this? So what, like what month, what day? No, Cause... November, okay. 2015. Okay. So this is in the same, so basically the same three month span you did a, a marathon, you said a marathon PR and then ran two different 50-mile races? Yes. Okay. Any other races in there that I'm missing? No, not in that time <laughs> no. All right. So that, and then just the, the driving surrounding it, the child, the children logistics. Um, is it Was this Paul at the time? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Paul. And then Paul, Paul is doing all this stuff. Um, Paul is also a fantastic runner. Is it Paul Chacal? Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Chacal. Yeah. Chacal. Okay. Um and uh, and then at the time, did you have? I apologize, but did you have a broken foot while I did. you were doing this? I so shortly after the Erie Marathon, I was trail running, and I broke my ankle. So, did you run both fifty milers on this broken ankle? Yes. However, unbeknownst to me. I also ran Erie with a broken bone in my foot. So I went to the emergency room for my ankle 
And the ER doc came in and said, you didn't, why didn't you tell us you had just broken your foot? And I said, I didn't know I had just broken my foot. What are you talking about? Evidently, based on the the healing on the x-ray, they said I probably had broken one of the bones in my foot about six weeks earlier. So I had just thought, yeah, my foot hurt, but I had just assumed in the buildup to Erie, it was just, you know, yeah, stuff hurts when you're running that much. So, yeah. Now, this this makes me wonder if you experience pain differently than I do, (laughs) because I'll stub my toe and I'll be howling and jumping around the whole house. And you're running 50 mile races with multiple fractures in your feet and ankles. Yeah, there weren't big fractures. I mean, the the one on my ankle was an avulsion fracture, which is like a small break. It's like a glorified sprained ankle. So let's, you know, but. All right. All right. I'll, I'll relax on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll relax on that for a little bit and then dive into a different story, um, which for me is, is equally remarkable. And you said before, you gave a little caveat uh, to your story, you said, kids, don't do this at home. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll put this caveat in there for you. So you don't need to say it this time. But um, the experience you had in terms of your second childbirth, I oh, think yeah, this I, I think this is if, if I didn't know you, I would assume that this is fictional. No, it's not fictional. So let I think I, I'd love for the, the audience to hear this one too because this this is a this is an all timer. Okay, so I my two old I have three children. The two oldest ones are about seventeen months apart. So I put thing one. I can call them thing one and thing two. No one else can. <laughs> I was the day before my due date, and I felt like well my water broke. So I put thing one in the stroller and ran to the hospital to have thing two. All right. That was a really short story with so many questions that need to get asked. So why was running the best option there? So we had one car at the time and my ex-husband was at work. Oh, okay. All right. And, And the hospital was just under two miles away from my house. So it's not like I went and ran a half marathon with, you know, pushing a stroller after my water broke. It was about two miles. Now, that must have been. Was that was that you've done a lot of races, you've run a lot of miles. Was that one of the more painful running experiences? No, because. Right. So you've never given birth to a child. No, that's true. There were no contractions at that point. Like my water had broken, but. No, nothing really started yet. Okay. I have five-star right. accommodations. I have lazy kids. My water breaks, and then they hang out for hours. So I had time. That's true. But you didn't necessarily know that at that time, right? Because that was your no. second child? Right. Yeah. All right. Um, and then, also, we can't say that your children, that that laziness persisted with their children, considering that the child that was given that, that you gave birth to that day ended up winning... But under 19 age group and a half marathon at age 12. That is correct. 
So at least they were able to, 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 to shed the laziness as they moved on in life. That's correct. Yeah, she is quite an athlete. She ran the Army 10-miler when she was 11, Yankee homecoming a few times. She ran that half, and she's a hurdler. Now she says she doesn't do distance. <laughs> so There you go. So why is running important to you? Because uh, murder is illegal. Whoa. Okay. No, Care to I'm, expand? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think on most runners, it is a good way to manage stress. So running kind of keeps everything balanced and allows me to better engage in society. Now, you obviously have a lot of energy. It comes across easily when you're talking, and given your athletic background, it's evident there as well. Do you Were you always someone who had a lot of energy as a kid and as you were growing up? Oh, yeah. I was bouncing off the walls since the moment I was born. I, I did all the sports. Uh, yeah. Dancing, gymnastics, soccer, softball, horseback riding, whatever. Just, yeah running around like a dingling that was me so for you was it was it just a matter of um just trying to get as much energy out as possible or was there certain things that you gravitated towards um obviously you, at this point running is a, a big thing for you but when did it when did that crystallize in terms of that being the sport that you were going to put all this energy into uh probably in college before i broke my leg and then, you know, I said, take all that time off. But probably once I moved away, I realized that was probably my thing. I wasn't, you know, nobody plays. Well, I shouldn't say that. To me, playing soccer and and clearly gymnastics, nobody, you don't, you know, you don't have recreational gymnastics for 30-year-olds. Uh, so running just made sense. And, and the more I got into, you know, academics the more running made sense in terms of an efficient stress reliever yeah so you're a college professor and a scientist um and with that background how does data and analytics play a role in your running training and or race preparation so i try not to get too nutty with it um because yeah especially now with the watches the data available first of all because of my background i know a lot of that you've got to take with a grain of salt if you use it as a relative gauge to look at whether things are going directionally if they're improving or decreasing what have you but to use it as an absolute number probably not your best idea i mean you can't get vo2 max from your wrist i'm sorry uh, not effectively anyway so in terms of all that type of data i sort of use it as a a gauge to see if, if things are going in one direction or another, but in terms of the miles and the, the pace, that stuff, I sort of look at in a bit more detail for myself. I, I have a lot of spreadsheets. I love it. Okay. So are you able to have, uh, from a race prediction standpoint or pacing standpoint, are you able to kind of lock in with precision in terms of what you're capable of doing before a race? I usually, know what I'm going to do. I don't always tell everybody what I think I can do, but I pretty much know. I mean, that being said, you could 
you could, you know, trip and have a bad race or whatever. But for the most part, I pretty much know what's going to happen. Can it ever go the other way? Because there, obviously there's a lot of factors that can hamper performance. You know, there's almost an endless list of things. Um, but in terms of that dream day where everything comes together and all of a sudden, you know, perfection's in sight, does, do you, does that ever happen to you or is that something that you think is possible? I kind of think that's a load of hooey. So what I mean by that is, you can catch a flyer and you can maybe run, say in a marathon, you might run two minutes faster than what you thought your A time was going to be. But essentially, if everything's going right, you run the race you trained for. So I don't really think anybody's going to go out and have some crazy breakout performance, uh, you know, running 10 minutes in the marathon distance or eight minutes or even really maybe five minutes faster than they truly thought they could do based on their, their training and their effort level during that training. I think it's, nah, I don't think the, the dream race lightning in a bottle, but that, that, that gets you maybe two minutes. Right. And especially in a marathon, if someone's not as, uh, experienced as you in that i know a lot of people who are new to it or even their their second or third marathon they might feel great in the first half marathon you know first 10 miles or so uh and then all of a sudden have visions of grandeur and then you know things could fall apart quickly after that yeah you should feel good in the first 10 miles because you should be running conservatively in the first 10 miles so oh typically if i'm going to run a race for a time like for example i ran the bay state marathon in massachusetts a couple what the end of october and i knew because i needed i wanted a qualifier for 2019 for boston and i thought i might be able to run you know 336 338 somewhere in there and to do that you shouldn't be running or for me i shouldn't be running any of the first half marathon faster than really like it, 816 to 820 and it felt really good and then after that you just you know ratchet it down from from 13 to 16 you maybe drop it 10 seconds a mile and then from 16 to 20 and then from 20 hopefully you're gonna race a 10k i mean to me if your marathon's going perfectly that's how it should be run and you shouldn't try to fade from the front and hang on i mean hanging on at the end is hard enough when you do everything right if you've run too fast, too early, you're not going to hang on. That's a very interesting point. That's a very interesting point because also it's, it's hard to pull out of that. I guess for me, this is me from my own personal perspective for an ultra marathoner, you might have a different take on this, but I feel like it's hard to pull yourself out of the spiral once it starts going badly. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I just assume that spiral, I don't, I'm not going to get in that. I'm not going to circle the drain if I can avoid it because quite frankly, if you've put in the training and you've run conservatively enough, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be manageable and your last 5k should be your fastest. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, and I know the cliche that I've heard is that in a marathon, the 20 mile mark is the halfway point. Amen, brother. (laughs) Absolutely. 
And it's funny because for a lot of people, me included again, that's the upper limits of the training I would do for a marathon. So it's interesting to say only train, relatively speaking, to the halfway point. So do you think that oh, in your own marathon training that maybe people should either train longer than that or put in extra miles? Or how, how should people stagger or set up their training to prepare themselves for the last 10K, the last 5K, and so it's not just a death march to the end? Uh, so I don't necessarily think you need anything more than 20, but not, not one run is going to make or break your training cycle. So for example, I used the Hyannis marathon in February of this year to qualify for 2018 and the, the base date that we just discussed to qualify for 2019 in both of those training cycles, my longest run was 16 miles. Oh, I had a lot of two-a-days where I'd go out and I would run, you know, a, a half maybe. And then later in the day, I'd go to the track and run four miles pretty friskily, if that's a word. Um, because you have to be able to run on tired legs. And so to be able to put in that volume and not hurt yourself and have quality miles on tired legs... I'm a big fan of the two-a-days when you do it like that. And I don't mean two-a-day where I run four in the morning and one at night. I mean like a two-a-day where I run, you know, eight or more in the morning and four at night. So to me, and, and everybody's different and whatever works for people is great. It's not a run if it's under four miles. Like that's the that's the benchmark. So I'm not going out for anything that's less than four miles unless I get hurt. Mm -hmm. So you bring up an interesting point in terms of, you know, the, the putting the emphasis on running on tired legs and getting yourself in that state and then making the most of it. Um, I'm not I'm not a Hanson's athlete, but I have read uh, so a lot of their literature, I should say, uh, the Hanson Running Club out of Michigan. Right. They have a lot of high level runners. And I know that they at least when the articles and books I've read, uh, this is dating back a couple of years, um, that they were big proponents in that as well. Yeah, I mean, I didn't cook that up on my own. I have a lot. I basically read the Hanson stuff and bastardized it. Got it. Or, or butchered it or whatever, or or made it work into my ridiculous schedule. Improved it, Lori. Let's yeah. just, you know, you have to be pessimistic. Maybe you improved it. I improved it for me. I don't know that it's going to work for everybody. <laughs> but. Um, so another... I think another thing we talked about some of the crazy moments in your running career um, on a different note uh, from you know, a, a tragic perspective. Um, you had another interesting moment uh, to say the least. Um, and that's certainly not the right word for it, but back in 2013 um, you were, you were running the Boston marathon uh, the year of the bombing. And in fact, you were pretty close to the site um before get before I go before I butcher the story anymore, um, would you mind just telling your story here? I know that you've written about it and talked to journalists about it as well in a couple of different forums, um, but I think it's a it, it is interesting to hear. Sure. Um, so my relationship with the Boston Marathon is that I run every year, even as a qualified runner, as a, a 
fundraising effort for the Rett Syndrome Association of Massachusetts. And that year was no different. I do it every year. Um, that's just something I feel compelled to do. So because I run for them, we, I get access to VIP seating for the finish line. So the bleachers, we, if you watch it on TV, you can see the, the bleacher area right at the finish line. So I was 36 that year. First time my mother had ever gone to a race ever in my life. So this is a soccer mom. She'd go to anything horseback for whatever reason. It just never worked out that she, she'd not ever been to a race. I said, well, how about you come to the Boston Marathon? So she brought her friend and they were sitting in the bleachers. That year, that was the first time they'd ever gone. And sorry, they go every year. So they're fine. They're fine. But it's just weird to think about. So I had just finished the race. I was getting my medal when the first bomb went off. And I, I'd not ever experienced anything like that ever. And I just looked at the woman that was giving us the medals. I said, I think my mother just got blown up. Like no filter at all, right? Like total, nobody says that out loud, but in the moment you don't really have time to think. And then another runner said, no, it's Patriots Day. That's, you know, so I said, no, I've run this race enough to know that that's not normal. And then the second explosion went off and a policeman started yelling, run. I was like, um, run. Okay. Like, there's so much going through your mind. I'm like, do I run towards the bleachers? Because that's where my mother is. Do I run away? And so... I guess cowardly. I, I ran away. So everyone started running away from the, the area and there's the metal barricades to keep the, the fans out, away from the, the athletes, what have you. I had to literally hurdle those after just finishing the race, but adrenaline just took over and I made my way to the common and I got one phone call out to the babysitter and said, don't, she, I said, don't let the kids see the TV, what have you. And she said, oh, we know you finished. And they didn't even know that a, a bomb had gone off at that time. I said, no. I said, There's, I said, I'm okay. I don't know where my mother is. I said, do not let the kids see the TV. But in the age of, of social media, all my kids' friends started texting them and calling them, oh, my God, you know, did your, mo did your mom get blown up? Is she dead? Blah, blah, blah. Like, horrible things that you don't want you. Because their kids, the other kids are, you know, they're, they're all kids. They don't realize what they're doing so then there's no cell phones there's chaos everywhere and I happen to just be sitting on that statue that's right across from the Arlington t-stop and it was a CNN uh, not a reporter but a woman that worked for CNN and she had a satellite phone and, and and she said you might be able to get a phone call out with this so I tried my mom's cell phone and for whatever reason, I was able to get a hold of her and I just left her a message where I was. And then about 10 minutes later, I could see her through the crowd and she came running over. So that was pretty amazing. Now, my mom has experience in emergencies. She's a Red Cross volunteer and she had been down at Katrina. So it was the first time I'd seen my mom in like disaster mode, if you will. 
and she started talking to the cops and she actually was able to, to make her way down and, and get some of the, the bags for myself and another one of the, the team runners. And before we, you know, she got moved out of the area also. And then we met up with um, some of the other runners that hadn't finished from team Rhett. So it was a pretty uh, amazing experience and not and clearly when I say amazing, I mean just overwhelming emotionally um, and my car was actually at the Boston Garden because there's nothing quite like being at the garden for the hockey game after the marathon. So clearly we didn't, we didn't get a chance to go to the game that night. It was, it was canceled. It was postponed, but we had to have a police escort into the garage to get the car to get out. And that was very spooky also because it was, you know, no one in there and the, the police literally like followed us the whole way in and all the whole way out. Um, it was pretty wild. And then the RET team organizer actually asked me to write about that for the next year. For 2014, the BAA offered um, or granted entry. I didn't have a qualifier for 2014. I just missed it. Um, and so the team RET organizer said, will you please you know, tell your story um, that way? If, if they deem you worthy of having a bib, that's just, you know, we can open up the bib that you would have had for the charity to another charity runner, just more money for the charity, essentially. So I did that and the, the BAA felt that the story was, you know, worthy of, of running again. So I ran 2014 on one of their um, bibs for the people that were profoundly affected by the marathon, which I always feel a little funny about saying because, you know, I didn't lose anyone. I didn't, I wasn't physically injured, um, but it wasn't like they had a set amount of of bibs. So I wasn't taking one away from somebody else who might've needed one or might've been more deserving of one. So that was that. And then a few months. So the, in the months after the Boston marathon that year, um, I ran the New York City Marathon in November, and I stopped right at the finish line before I got my medal, and I was like, I said to the woman, I said, let's just stop for a minute. I said, I don't really want to take this medal from you, because the last time I took a medal at a major marathon was Boston. And this is what I love about New York. It was a woman from Germany just volunteering at the marathon, at the New York City Marathon, and she just looked at me and said, we're safe. You're safe. I'm going to give you this medal. You're a marathoner. And she did just that. And obviously everything was fine. But it was a very big moment in terms of moving past the the fear, if you will, of big city marathons in that moment. Because she was right. She gave me my marathon. I mean, she's from Germany. I'm from Boston. We're in New York. It was it was very effective at sort of restoring my faith in being in a crowd, if you will, for lack of a better explanation. So I saved the shoes that I ran the Boston Marathon in in 2013, and I have every intention of running the 2018 Boston Marathon in those shoes for the five-year anniversary. 
And um, first of all, thank you for sharing for sharing that. Um, it's understandably uh, an emotional topic, uh, yeah. and certainly a harrowing experience that you and your family went through um, from every perspective. Oh, I forgot and, to mention. My mom oh. came to New York and she and that. That's family. exactly, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to talk about oh. was that she was in the bleachers for that as well. She was. And every year since she, she's gone to Boston and she went to New York and I don't ever cross that finish line without either stopping and giving her a hug or at least, you know, seeing her and making sure she sees me and I see her because, you know, there's a time to race and there's a time to, enjoy the run and sort of take it all in. And so that's what Boston's been for me for a lot of years. Now, if you don't mind speaking for your mom, so, so the, that first Boston race, yeah. but that was her first time, like you said, attending the event and watching you there for the marathon. And now it doesn't miss either the New York or the Boston. So what about that experience catalyze that in her head of like hey i'm not going to miss these i'm going to be i'm going to be at each one of these events i'm not quite sure i think she she feels a sense of pride for the marathon even as she she'll be the first one to tell you i'm not a runner i'm the biggest cheerleader so i think for her it's a sense of pride in the city and in the marathon itself and a sense of sort of like a middle finger to anybody that might want to strike fear into the the city itself she's also a huge red sox fan so the whole big poppy thing was like right up her wheelhouse <laughs> <laughs> and to anyone who doesn't know that's a, that's a reference to uh what david ortiz said at a baseball game uh here in boston uh where he uh yeah, he lets he let some words fly yeah. on national television. Got caught some flack for it, but I think ninety five percent of people were pro were pro sentiment uh, of what he had to say. So that, 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 that was pretty funny. Um, and you have a marathon coming up this weekend. I do, I do. It is the last race of two thousand seventeen. I went to run this same race last year. I'd actually planned on running the um, inaugural event, but had a family situation that uh, kept me in Boston, but a friend of mine who's the founder of pro athletics, Gary Allen was in Millinocket, Maine of all places and uh, realized this town needed some help. And he's a tremendous ambassador for running and just generally a good person. And he decided he would put together a marathon, just come to Millinocket, no entry fee, and spend the amount of money you would spend on the marathon in the city. And it just caught fire, so to speak. I think there's like 1,400 people registered for the race now for this year. I think there was about 900 last year. Last year, the, the temperatures topped out at about 8 degrees. It oh, boy. It was <laughs> the coldest marathon I have ever run. It was ridiculous. But... It, and a lot of the people just stopped that were registered for that the marathon just ran the half and were like, you know what, we're good. It's the town is getting the same benefit, but um, no, I'm, my brain is not wired that way. So I was in for the full sucktitude of, of the freezingness. I think there's parts of me that are still frozen, but I'm going back. Um, and we bought, um, we spent the amount of money that we probably spend on a race entry in Legos for the ta- for you know kids in the town they have a big secret santa program and um yeah you know it's one of those times where you you go in and you buy a sandwich and you leave a ten dollar tip and 
you just let these, you know, salt of the earth Americans remember that they're not forgotten because that is a town. Once the mill closed up and went abroad, the, all the jobs went with it. So I think it's an amazing event. I hope Gary never stops doing it because I'll be there every year. Now this this podcast is going to be released after you run it. Um, but with, with that said, yeah, they, exactly, exactly. I can't wait to to see how how it goes. Um, and if someone wants more information, obviously they have their own website and things like that. They can get more information online. But where is the town in Maine? Obviously, Maine people don't know Maine is a huge state uh, when you talk about New England states. So how high, how up north is it? It is about five hours north of Boston. Um, if if people are familiar with Katahdin, Mount Katahdin, the uh, almost to the terminus of the Appalachian Trail, that's where it is. Okay. Got so it. Well, it, that, it that's up there because the middle of nowhere. Right. Yeah. Because Maine, like the southernmost point of Maine is an hour from Boston, roughly. So to be right. five hours from Boston, you're really getting up there. Yeah. Well, Lori, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for all of the, uh, of the stories and for sharing, um, you know, everything that you did. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you're listening here, if you've gotten to this point in the podcast, thank you for sticking with our little technical issue there. Yeah, podcast. <laughs> the app just stopped all of a sudden, but we picked it up and we were, we were, we were ready to go. Um, good luck this weekend and uh, happy running. Thank you. Thank you for having me.